listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. Today we have a very special guest, the poet Lee Herrick. Born in Daejeon, Korea, and adopted to the United States at the age of 10 months, Lee Herrick is the author of three books of poems, Scar and Flower, a finalist for the 2020 Northern California Book Award, Gardening Secrets of the Dead, and This Many Miles from Desire. He's also the co-editor of the anthology The World I Leave You, Asian American Poets on Faith and Spirit. He served as Fresno Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2017. He teaches at Fresno City College and the MFA program at Sierra Nevada University. As well as being a celebrated poet, Lee is among one of the kindest, most generous, and sincere guests we've ever had the pleasure of speaking to on this podcast. And from our very first email exchange, we were struck by his warmth and his care. Though he is a busy writer, professor, and father, and we were ultimately two strangers asking for a favor, we think of him as like a kind of Korean adoptee cultural treasure. In this broad-ranging conversation, as most of our conversations, let's face it, tend to be, we start with Lee's reading of two poems from Scar and Flower, including How Music Stays in the Body, which we think should perhaps be required reading for adoptees. We then ask Lee about his journey to poetry, about the fundamental fire that drives his art, and his journey to peace and forgiveness following his second trip to Korea and an unsuccessful birth family search. Most of all, Lee wants all of us to be okay, and after talking to him, we feel like just maybe we will be. Finally, a content warning. This episode contains a brief discussion of suicide. Hi Lee, it's so nice to see you again uh, and thank you so much for talking to us today on the podcast. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. We were wondering if we could start by asking you to kindly read one or two of your poems from your, your latest collection, Scar and Flower, which we loved. Thank you. Uh, I would be happy to. And before I read this, I want to just say how happy I am and honored to be on the podcast. I love what the two of you do. So thank you for having me. I'll read two poems from Scar and Flower. This is my latest book. The first poem is titled How Music Stays in the Body. And in a nutshell, I think it's about or it relates to my birth mother or first mother and maybe mothers in general, and maybe even adoptees in general. But this is called How Music Stays in the Body. Your body is a song called Birth or First Mother, a miracle that gave birth to another exquisite song. One song raises three boys with a white husband. One song fought an American war overseas. One song leapt from 14 stories high and like a dead bird shattered into the clouds. Most forgot the lyrics to their own bodies or decided to paint abstracts of mountains or moons in the shape of your face. I've been told mothers don't forget the body. I can't remember your face, the shape or story or how you held me the day I was born, so I wrote 1,000 poems to survive. I want to sing with you in an open field, a simple room, or a quiet bar. I want to hear your opinions about angels. Truth is, angels drink too. So Jew spilled on the halo, white wings sticky with gin, as if any mother could forget the music that left her. You should hear how loudly I sing now. I've become a ballad of wild dreams and coping mechanisms. I can breathe now through any fire. I imagine I got this from him or you, my earthly inheritance, your arms, your sigh, your heavy song, 
I know all the lyrics. I know all the blood. I know why angels howl into the moonlight. So the second poem I'll read is titled Stay. And really for me, this was a poem that uh, maybe could mean different things. Maybe like all poems or songs could mean something different to a different person. But for me, it's kind of a, an anti-suicide poem. Um, Stay. I am not what you thought an ocean would look like. But once a fire starts in you, there will always be ash. There are long walks, thank goodness. There are woods to be small in. There are anchors to the world, so you will not fly away before it is time. The miracle of grass, even though you may forget it. The fact that you are loved, even though you may forget it. And what a miracle that is, being loved, or more so, that you are a wide blue ocean capable of loving, you churning body of sea life who survived the oil spills, the broken glass, the dead birds floating in the bay. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Actually, I was really hoping that you would um, – I, I really wanted to hear Stay, um, so thank you. It was my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I just want to say um, uh, the first time that I encountered your poetry was um, in Laura Kim's anthology, and so I, I just was kind of flipping through it, and I found How Music Stays in the Body. It just had like an immediate kind of visceral – and emotional impact on me. And, um, and now I've heard it and read it many times and it's every time it has a strong effect and slightly different lines resonate each time. And, um, and I also like, I think, you know, I I used to, um, sing a lot and, my first reaction when I heard a song that I really liked was like, oh, I want to try and sing that. And when I, I read your poem, I was like, oh, I, I want to like read that aloud myself. For <laughs> so. I love that, Hannah. And yeah, I think, you know, when that poem was first published, that speaks to our community and the surprising ways we discover each other and new parts of ourselves. Uh, I'd, I've never met Laura in person, but as she writes about in her introduction, she went back to Korea and lived for a while and really put in a lot of work to make this anthology happen called the motherland, I think. And, um, yeah. Um, so, you know, you're talking about yourself as a singer. I cannot sing to save my life. I'm probably tone deaf, but I'll tell you music is a huge part of my life. Uh, I listen to music regularly and have gone to probably hundreds of live shows and concerts. And that poem, even the title, How Music Stays in the Body, speaks to what I think is, to use your word, a visceral relationship that I have with language and sound and, and music and poetry. And I was consciously trying to put some of that into the poem. I was very mindful of rhythm and pace and pause and breath and velocity in that poem. So on the page, I hope that it might have that effect, but I love the, what you said that you read it out loud because for me, it's a poem. When I read it, it takes on a different feel. Actually, I'm curious as well. um, What the process of writing it was like, like whether, I don't know if if poems kind of come to you half-formed and you kind of write, like, what's already there, like, in a rush or whether it's kind of more painstaking kind of process or... For me, different poems are, uh, you know, it it could be a different process. Maybe one out of 50 or 100 will come out clean and just 
one draft, but that's very rare. And even those, I think, have been, quote, written, you know, lowercase w, meaning I've thought about them. They've been sort of building in my mind for a long time, and then they just happen to pour out for some reason. But usually it's a little bit more collage-like and drafting and revision and all those things. Um, With how music stays in the body, I'm looking at the poem, and there were a few lines in it that I had with me that I knew I wanted to use for something sometime. Um, One of them was the phrase, uh, soju spilled on the halo, which for me was sort of melodic. You know, you've got the the two-syllable soju and then halo, and they both have a vowel at the end. So I knew I wanted to, that I might be able to use that sometime. Another one was the line early in the poem, that one song, and I think of adoptees like songs, there's a line that says, one song leapt from 14 stories high and like a dead bird shattered into the clouds. That's a reference to uh, the late Korean adoptee, Korean-American adoptee, uh, Philip Clay, who was adopted to the United States at eight years old and was deported, for God's sake, our reprehensible, disgusting immigration laws. And he was deported and he committed suicide and he jumped from 14 stories high. So those kinds of things I was able to work into the poem. Um, It did kind of take on some momentum of its own, I have to say, some momentum of its own. It was one of those poems that is one that kind of takes you over. It's hard to explain. I think an athlete if she is competing at a high level or say composing or singing at a, at a reasonably high level, something can take over you where the poem takes over. A little bit of that happened with this poem too, I think. Mm-hmm. I think you get that sense when you read it. Like, it, I don't know how to describe it, but to me there are little, there are shifts that um, kind of take you in a slightly different direction, but also keep yeah, building this kind of momentum or velocity and, I wondered how those happened. Yeah, you know, part of it, there's this poetry craft term, anaphora, which is just repetition of a line or phrase. And so in the poem, there are about four or five different places where there's some real shifts in the language. The one song, one song, one song. And then the, I wrote a thousand poems. I want to sing with you in an open field. And then later, like, I know all the lyrics. I know all the blood. I know why angels howling the moonlight. So those were deliberate sort of shifts like a song might have verse, chorus, bridge, outro, those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really um, a nice, interesting, close reading. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned in our workshop, Thank you again for for doing that. That was such a wonderful experience for us and for all who participated. Um, But you mentioned that you started to write poetry relatively late in life and that you felt like it saved you in a sense. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, And were you an avid reader of poetry before starting to write it yourself? Yes, I was always a huge reader. As a kid, I read every book I could get my hands on that was about sports. I'm a big <laughs> sports fan. Uh, I mean, I used to know all the statistics and all the records in several sports, and I just devoured biographies and things like that. When I got into high school, I started to read things that the teachers were giving me, and I didn't understand a lot of it. But one, I remember Shakespeare really being mystified and taken with the language and the sound of the language. So I did start to read poetry, but at that time it was more just a curiosity and, you know, something that I would be assigned in school. You know, I'll tell you the one thing where language and lyricism really spoke to me a lot before I started writing poetry seriously was music and I would write down all the lyrics and this, I was born in late 1970 sometime. So, you know, growing up as a kid in the seventies, this was obviously before, 
you know, CDs, much less MP3s or iPods or Spotify or whatever. <laughs> so you had to really, you know, pause the record or the cassette and write down the words and then think, you know, did that singer just say watch or wash? And you'd rewind it. So I would spend hours just thinking about the words of these songs. And I think that translates to poetry very much. When I probably was an undergrad, maybe my junior or senior year in college, then I was reading more poetry. I was reading a lot of the British romantic poets like Shelley and Keats and some of American transcendentalist writers and poets. And, you know, I'd have a professor who'd give me a book here and there and say, you might like this. I can remember one very specific instance that might have changed my trajectory a bit. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I didn't study poetry. I studied composition and rhetorics. But I took a, a literature seminar, and it was from this professor that everyone loved. He was just brilliant and so nice and always encouraging. And he asked me one day, I was probably about 24 at the time, and he asked me, he said, hey, Lee, he said, aren't you Korean? Weren't you born in Korea? And I said, Yes, I, I think I, I wrote something about that. So I said I, I was. And I was very nervous because he intimidated me, you know, in a good way. I mean, he was this respected professor and he was taking interest in me. And, he, and, I, and I said, I am Korean. He said, not that you would ever want to, but, or that you need to just because you're Korean, but have you ever read a Korean novel? And I remember wanting to say so badly that I had because this was Dr. Taylor asking me, but I couldn't think of one because I hadn't. He said, well, if you would like any recommendations sometimes, let me know. If you would like to talk sometime, I can give you a few titles. A few weeks later, I worked up the courage and humbled myself to go to his office and asked him if he would still be willing to give me a couple of titles. Uh, he gave me a couple. And the book I ended up reading was a collection of short stories by Korean female fiction writers called A Room in the Woods, and it probably changed my life. It was the first book or film or anything that I'd read or experienced that was Korean, and it just opened up everything for me in terms of possibilities. And so to get more specifically to your question, when you say starting late in life writing, my first book didn't come out until I was 37, which was about 13, 14 years after this experience I'm just talking about. But I think that's how writing can happen. It does take time. But that was a very important early experience for me, I think. Since then, I, of course, am reading poetry and other genres, too, quite avidly. I'm, I'm a pretty big reader across genres. Can we ask you, um, what skills do you think have been crucial to um, becoming a writer or, you know, to your success as a writer? Um, I don't know, for example, the, you know, the discipline of, of creating a regular writing practice or um, the ability to, to take criticism, you know, without taking it personally. I'm always curious, I think, with talking to any artist, like whether these, these kinds of skills, like what, what you think the crucial skills were and whether you had to cultivate them or whether they kind of came naturally. That's a good question. Definitely had to cultivate those skills. I think for me, one of the biggest hurdles I had to overcome, and maybe it's a skill, is one that you mentioned, and that is not taking things personally. I used to really fear rejection. I used to uh, fear submitting work for publication, and I would take it personally if an editor didn't like my work. I would mistranslate that as they didn't like me, or I was a bad person, or not a a good enough writer or something like that. That's definitely something I think I needed to overcome. And I would humbly suggest that most writers who are writing seriously have, have worked through that. And it can take time. Another one I think is um, reading voraciously. Sometimes a, a early writer will say, oh, I don't want to read because it might affect my voice. But that's just, I think, completely antithetical to the idea of art and community and learning from others. It's hard to imagine a, an athlete who doesn't know 
his or her or, or their peers or a singer who doesn't know what's being produced in, in their field. So I think reading was a big part of it for me. I think also the craft itself, working on the craft, the poetics, honing the craft, learning different strategies or techniques so that you can use the ones that work for you and align with your sensibilities or your aesthetics so that your voice can emerge more naturally, but also with some some art to it, if you will. What else? Those are some. Um, I think there's an element of faith and trust involved and knowing that it can be a long game, that if it's speaking to you and important to you, that it's meaningful enough to trust that the art will be there for you. You know, for me, I didn't set out to write a book of poems. I just had a lot of things in my head and my heart that had to go somewhere, you know? And I think that's really the impetus. And I don't know if that's a skill, but I think honoring those things that are in you or that are calling to you, that is an important part of it. Thanks. Can, can I just ask a, a, a follow-up? Now knowing your history and love of sport, and, and I'm noticing you're using the word athlete quite a bit too, I guess I'm thinking like competition or like self-comparison and how that might sabotage, say, a writer, maybe especially when they're emerging and trying to kind of find their voice and find their footing. Was that also a little bit part of your process too? It's kind of like grappling with those sorts of yeah that that's a great question ryan i played i mean i played many different sports as a kid and played soccer competitively uh, i played four years of college soccer and then a, a very low level low 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 level <laughs> semi-pro soccer <laughs> and i mean low level semi-pro and, you know, I couldn't sprint now if I had to, but I will tell you that mindset of work and sweat and grind, I think translates to the arts. Mm. So there's that. As far as competition goes and comparison, I used to be very competitive when I was in college, very serious about soccer. You know, you're trying to win and beat everyone. I will say I never had that feeling when I was writing. I've never had the feeling of I need to be better than this person or why did they get a book deal first or anything like that. I, this is just for my two cents. I think that is counterproductive to not only good art, but also to one's mental wellness, comparing ourselves to other people. Uh, It might be hard to not, you know, to avoid, but, whether it's being more critical of the media we take in or really accentuating and embracing our uniqueness, our qualities. We don't have to compete with other people. There can be 10 Korean adoptee poets. I want them all to do well. Uh, So I don't feel like I'm in competition with them or any other poet, any other American poet or Australian poet. I want people to do well. I will say though, the work and the competitiveness, if anything, is just internal. Like, I, I want to continue to work. I want to continue to stretch myself and grow and things like that. But it's, but it's definitely not with others. That might be different from other writers. I know writing and publishing can be competitive. I just have never felt that. I want to, I, I'm writing really for myself. There's a writer who started off as a poet. She was also a great novelist, Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple and books like that. But she started off as a poet, and she said that poetry is a place where the leftover love and the leftover anger can go. And it's those kinds of things that drive me more than publication or prizes. Those things will happen, I think, in in due time. Well, that leads nicely um, to our our next question, um, which is about... Yeah, honouring that that impetus for your work. So in your workshop, you introduced the idea of um, the fire and the smoke as um, the fundamental source of, of drive uh, for your for your art. Um, would you mind just 
explaining that um, again for our listeners? Sure. So in that workshop, which I loved, by the way, I was talking about this concept I like to use when I'm teaching, especially middle level to maybe advanced writers, about the fire as the source of heat that can be the fuel for a creative writer. For example, it's usually that fire, I think, is usually something that happened in a person's life early on. It's often, although not always, but usually it is a difficult or even traumatic experience. And I think it's the source of heat for the creative output. It can fuel a line in a poem or a story or a song even maybe. But in poetry, it can fuel a poem. It can fuel a line. It can fuel a whole book. And it can be the fuel to sustain a writer over, over a career. So I was trying to explain to the workshop participants that it's helpful if a writer can identify what their fire is. It took me a long time to realize it, but mine, which might be obvious to your listeners, mine is clearly my adoption. This is the major <laughs> life event, right? But I used to skirt around it, and we, there are all different reasons why this can happen. I was raised in an all-white family who told me they didn't see me as Korean, and you're lucky to be here, and all these things. So it just sort of obscured all that heat, if you will, all that sense of who I was. So what I'm telling people is to identify that is helpful for the writing. It helps, and, and it could be something else for somebody who's not adopted. You know, it's that thing that you're not comfortable talking about with other people sometimes. It's the thing that keeps you up or that moves you. And so I think once you realize it, it can be liberating. It might seem heavy. It might seem depressing. In my experience, though, it's the opposite in a sense. It's, it's liberating to know who I was, who I am. And so there's that part of it. So that's the fire. Um, I, you know, I was telling them that sometimes a person's not ready to acknowledge it and that's okay. I'm a big believer that we come to things in our lives and our art or our identities when we're ready. And there's no timetable. Some people know it early on. Some people don't realize it till they're 50. And I think that's okay. But I do think our best writing comes from that source of heat. The smoke that you talked about, Hannah, is what I call related things to the fire. For example, a person might say, oh, it's addiction. Now, that's clearly a serious issue. But I would say that's the smoke and that could create and produce some deeply meaningful writing. But something preceded the addiction that is more the fire. And so, you know, I talk about in the workshop how it can sort of spark other fires. And it's just a, a great source of creative writing uh, material, I guess. One, one famous writer said, all you need to be a writer is to think seriously about your childhood, you know, and, and to want to write about it. You have all the material in the world. It's just, then it's just a matter of, do you want to write about it? Which is a different subject, but that's a little bit about the fire. <laughs> you know, I can just quickly add that I think it's important to take time for oneself. I don't believe writing should be self-destructive. Sometimes we're too close and we have to take a, a minute. Sometimes it can be difficult. That's often where the best writing is, leaning into that difficulty. But sometimes we do have to take a break, give ourselves a day or a week, and then come back to it when we're ready, you know? Which is kind of something that um, maybe is, is missed um, in the pursuit of um, establishing like a, a regular writing practice or a daily, you know, like a disciplined kind of um, regular writing habit. Yeah, I, I think it's important to know one's rhythms uh, physically and emotionally and, and spiritually and mentally. Uh, I don't 
think we should fry the engine. I don't think we should lose ourselves as a result of writing. I think we can find ourselves as a result of that process. So, and this has just been my experience, but you know, I, this, I think this is why books can take two, three, five, ten years or more, you know. So I know we're jumping around a little bit, but this is something um, I guess I particularly wanted to ask you about. Um, so in other interviews, you've, you've mentioned that you have returned to Korea twice, um, first in 2001 and then in 2008, and that um, on the second trip that you uh, conducted an extensive birth family search, um, which, which was a difficult process, and that after that trip, that ultimately led you to um, to make some kind of peace with Korea and the adoption. And, I mean, I, I've personally been very preoccupied with, um, you know, this process of forgiveness my, myself with, with my, my own um, adoption and my, my birth family. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that process was like for you. Like you said, and uh, I, I went to Korea the first time in 2001. At that time, I was 31, and I was not even thinking about birth family search at that time. I was kind of late to that. Maybe not by others' timelines, but it felt late to me. Uh, I just never thought that I... Or maybe I thought about, I clearly must have thought about it. I remember thinking about it a lot, but I never knew how, or I never thought I would do it, you know? So when I went in 2001, I was really just, I stopped off on my way to China. I, I taught in Qingdao, China for a month. And I thought, well, I'll just stop in Seoul for a couple of days. And it was, I mean, you could imagine how quick and surface a two-day stop in Seoul would be. So... Seven years later, uh, I was 38, and a good dear friend of mine, her name is Kim Sune, uh, she's an adopted Korean from, uh, well, she's lived in different parts of the world, but she was from New Orleans at that time, and she had a memoir come out called Trail of Crumbs, which was being, uh, she was being filmed by KBS in Korea about her life. And she said to me, because I was going to Korea in 2008 on a sabbatical, and she said, Lee, I can get you, I can, I can get you to meet some people that can help with your birth family search. I was very overwhelming because it felt sudden to me. I wasn't emotionally prepared for it, but I really wanted to take that opportunity. So I can just give you a, maybe some general details, and then I'll get to the peace and the forgiveness part, but some general details about that time there. I had become a father in 2006, and my daughter is the biggest light in my life. My daughter, uh, you know, fatherhood for me is the most meaningful thing. But when I became a father in 2006, it also raised a lot of questions about my own adoption. And so there I was in 2008 in Korea. I did a birth family search. It was extremely emotional for me and difficult, as you might imagine. Uh, nothing came of it in terms of locating birth family. So I have not met immediate birth family. So I came back to the United States in 2008 feeling very just a lot of upheaval emotionally. I was probably a wreck for a good year. Not a wreck, but I emotionally just, I, I liken it to like a, an ocean that's always in motion and waves and, you know. Um, but I also felt really good. I remember feeling like now I know what Dejeun looks like. You know, I know I went to the place where the Dejan Christian Social Center used to be. 
I talked on the phone with a woman who was a social worker at the place where I was as an infant. So I had these experiences that I felt gave me some answers to questions I had. I do want to say this. I used to think I wasn't whole. I remember thinking like, because I don't have these parts of my story, you know, I don't know my exact birth date. I don't know birth. I used to think that I wasn't whole, that I was somehow incomplete. I think completely different now. And I would suggest and just offer up to your listeners that we are whole. We are whole people. We might not have, or at least I feel whole. I, you know, we're not less human. There might be very painful things, and there probably are, but I just really felt after 2008 that I'm a whole person. And maybe it was feeling that pain and recognizing that stuff that made me feel more whole because I was probably living in a little bit of denial for a while, you know. So there's that part of it. You know, and I also thought that with regard to the word peace, I have a, a dear friend, a dear poet friend who doesn't love that term. And I see why she says it, because there's the potential to think that it's naive and dismissive of trauma. So I don't think of peace as dismissive of any sort of struggle or difficulty, but rather, for me, it was a necessary leveling out so I could keep going, you know, that I would be okay with things I didn't know, big questions that I didn't know. I had to find a way to be okay with that because the chances are high. I'll never know the answers. And if that's the case, then am I never supposed to be whole or at peace? That just didn't seem good for me. And so I really worked on being at peace, so to speak, with what I didn't know. Because otherwise, I think that can devour a person. And one thing I always think of whenever I'm thinking of adoption or, you know, speaking to adoptees or maybe listeners who might have that experience, the one thing I always think is I want us all to be okay. You know, I want us all to be okay and then maybe even flourish, right? But for me, a big part of that was, okay, I need to make my peace with this stuff. Now, by this time, I was already a tenured professor. So, you know, I've never bought into these life markers like, oh, I've graduated, or oh, I have a book, or oh, I'm a... The journey of forgiveness and peace, I think, is different from the other stuff right? Those can be on different timelines. So here I am almost 40 years old at that time. It was quite a process to it. I think I had to go for a lot of walks. I did have, I went through some relationship changes and I don't like to talk about those too much, but sometimes our relationships have to change. And I don't want to get into that too much, but it might be a relationship that is literally unhealthy or a boundary with a family member, you know? So for me, that was part of it. Uh, peace is for me, it's related to boundaries and self and care. And so that we can flourish because if we're always experiencing attack and negative and questions of our identity, it's very hard for our identity to blossom or become who we are, whether that could be, our adoption identities, our, our profession, it could be sexual orientation, it could be our political affiliation. I mean, any numbers of things where we should be ourselves, for me, that was a very important part of all of this. And I, I want all of us to be fully ourselves, you know. So, that's the peace part of it. And with the forgiveness that you mentioned, a very smart woman that I knew as I was going through a lot of this stuff, I don't, I didn't have a lot of friends I could really talk to about this stuff. 
But I had a friend who I would talk to about it, and she really could relate to all this. I, I think one of the blessings of a podcast like this or these different community groups now is that hopefully people can find their tribe. They can find people who listen and support and maybe even who get it. So anyway, this woman um, knew I had been to Korea and knew I was really going through some things. And she said, Lee, have you ever thought about forgiveness? And I remember thinking, you know, what do you mean? And I might've even said, you know, what do you mean? And she said, well, have you ever thought about forgiving yourself? Mm. And I remember thinking, what did I do? I don't have to forgive myself and things like that. And she said, well, and she had this really wonderful way about her, not putting it on me, not forcing it, or you've got to do this. She was suggesting that I consider forgiving myself. And when I thought about it, I might have had things that I internally had told myself or believed that somehow I was part of the problem. So that started to make sense to me. And then she said, well, Lee, have you also ever thought about forgiving your birth parents? And that blew my mind again, because I remember thinking I haven't even met them or why I don't know that I'm angry. I do wonder and things like that. But when I thought about it, I probably did have some, I don't know if it's anger or at the very least certainly hurt. And she said, it might be worth thinking about forgiving them. And then, as if this weren't already enough for me and my limited emotional <laughs> maturity at the time, and maybe still, you know, I'm kind of blown away when she's talking to me like this. And then she said, have you ever thought about forgiving other Korean family. And I was just thinking, gosh, um, she said aunts or uncles or cousins that may or may not even exist, but that you consciously or subconsciously hold as this grip of tension and things that are maybe related. And I said, okay, I guess I could think about that. And then the last thing she said to me was, have you ever thought about give, forgiving Korea? And I just... You know, by then I realized what she was getting at, and I realized that I might have had this, you know, negative feeling for Korea. And I think it often manifests itself in young people who say things like, I would never go to Korea. I'm not Korean. I would, I don't want, I hate Korean food. Now, to each their own, I always say, okay, I'm not suggesting that if you have those feelings for your birth country, that you're somehow a bad person or negative. What I am suggesting, though, is for me, that was very helpful and liberating, realizing that the country of my birth did not have to have those negative connotations. And of course, a different conversation could be, of course, there are negative things about any country, the political structures, the patriarchy. But I'm talking about the things that I thought of Korea related to my adoption. So I don't remember exactly how long it took me. I don't know that there's a timeline or really even any steps to do it. But those are the things that I was thinking about with forgiveness. And I'm not a psychologist. I mean, I'm a professor of English. But I do think most psychologists would pretty readily tell a person that forgiveness is for us. It's for our mental health. It's liberating. It's just liberating. I felt so free after this. Uh, not naive, not dismissive of things that I've struggled with, but I felt so liberated and so much more at peace. I just want to say, I think <laughs> maybe that that's one of the most um, generous and complete and satisfying responses to like any of these huge questions that we've asked on the podcast um oh. I really hope that will be um yeah helpful for people to hear as as it has been you know for me just now um and also that that friend I, like who was that person that's um that's that's some friendship <laughs> yeah it's quite a friendship you know I I don't want to say who it is but I'll just say she's very smart in more ways than one, and an excellent listener, and very supportive. 
I will also say, Hannah and Ryan, I, I appreciate what you just said there about my response deeply because, quite frankly, I've never spoken in that kind of detail in any interview in print or on a podcast about that experience. And I think if I can just reciprocate some of the goodwill, and I'm not saying this to placate, but I think partly it's because of the two of you and the questions and the uh, sincerity and the safety and the things that allow a person to feel comfortable speaking openly and freely like that. So, but I, but I appreciate it. Wow. Thank you. So there was a, a moment in, in the workshop that you gave, um, and at least half of the participants had never attempted to write poetry before. And, and one person said that they were feeling really nervous and intimidated by the prompt. And you didn't apologize for the task or get self-conscious about it, but you did stop the workshop and you started just a conversation right, about that, um, kind of inviting everyone's fears um, to be voiced and and also reminding us that, and I think this may be a direct quote, that nerves are often the precursor to something important. And we were both just really struck by how you navigated and led that conversation and that space. Was that a sort of conversation that had been modeled to you from other teachers or mentors in the past? That's another wonderful question. And I, you know, that workshop was special in, in many ways. One is that that participant who said she was feeling very nervous or, you know, had a lot of maybe some anxiety with the, the prompt. I don't know that that had ever happened before. Mm-hmm. I don't now that's in a workshop online with a range of different experiences and, and with writing. So I don't think that's happened for me in a situation like that. However, I have taught for almost 30 years. And so it's quite common where a student or where a person will feel some levels of doubt or anxiety or nerves. But yeah, in that situation, it it caught me off guard a little bit. And I do remember thinking, should I just keep going? But I really think there's some value in knowing when it's worth pivoting or pausing. And it's hard to do that when it's a live situation because there are other people who may be wanting to get on with it or there also might be other people who felt the exact same way. So I think the pause for me was just opening up space to see if there were others who are feeling that way, but also just to honor that one person who felt that way. You know, it would be like, this is maybe a rough analogy, but it would be like if you're in a van with 10 people, this is going to be a bad example, I'm sorry, and only one person needs to stop and use the restroom. You know what I mean? It's probably good to let that one person take a break and recoup or whatnot. So with that, yeah, it it felt good. I'm not trying to be workshop facilitator or poet of the week here or, or teacher of the month. But if it was positive for the person, and if you're saying it was a, it was a positive moment in the workshop, I'm happy about that. We're all coming from different levels of experience and uh, risk aversion and nerves. And it's all a part of it, you know? Uh, but I do still stand by what I said, if I did say that in the workshop, is that nerves are often the precursor to something important. That's been my experience. I used to be terrified and nervous and racked with anxiety before I would speak in public, you know? And that's a process or sending out a poem for publication. They're all processes and we're all on those different paths. So I hope that that person felt supported or encouraged. I mean, the last thing I want to do is break someone's spirit in a writing workshop. (laughs) (laughs) I I also just want to point out that, um, you know, I I really admire that person 
yeah, and I, you know, I know that person <laughs> um, for pausing, you know, like putting up their hand to, to uh, express their nerves. Well, that was also like a, a courageous thing to do. So. Mm -hmm. Very much, mm -hmm. very much. And that's, a, I think, a very good point, but it's also a great example of another example of the risk or, or taking those steps is just saying, wait, I'm really uncomfortable with this or I'm a little nervous about this prompt. Yeah. So this is a really broad question that um, I know from from your your poetry and in other interviews, you've referenced the the role of faith in your life and in your art. Like, for example, in um, the, the last poem in Scar and Flower, you you mention that something you would you would hope for your your daughter is to I think to have a, a faith that she can count on. And yeah, you know, we were curious about um, what faith means to you and how you've cultivated it in your life? Yeah. The first thing I think of and what I think many people think of is some kind of formal religion or, or God. I did not grow up in or around any kind of church. I think my, my mom may have taken me to Sunday school a few times, but they were very much of the mind that I should just explore and find things on my own. And I appreciate that looking back. Um, they were not overly religious. Um, and so I didn't really grow up with much of that language or with much of that experience. Some of this answer might be a little general. And some things I want to keep for myself. But I'll try to answer it as openly as I can. But when I was 18 or 19, things were very difficult for me. And there was a lot of anger and confusion that was probably giving me some trouble. This was a time of real, we don't see color, a lot of just cognitive dissonance with my increasing awareness of my Asianness alongside your white and really having very few people to talk to or who would listen. So there were some dark patches and I think that was one of the first times I started thinking about God. Uh, and started thinking about something larger than me. You know, you referenced the last poem in the book, which is called The House is Quiet Except. And I was writing that, thinking about my daughter who was reading when she was a kid. And the lines are something like, I hope she'll have something she can count on, or a faith she can count on, perhaps God or wild trees, or a man, or a woman, uh, something like that. And I, I think partly, I, I mean, I'm always thinking of my daughter, and I want her to be okay. And a good portion of our lives, I think, at least in my experience, we are. But there are also times where we need something larger. For me, when I needed something beyond myself. And so that's what I think of with faith. Um, I also think of it, you know, as a verb in the active sense to know that it, it will be okay, to know that we will be all right, or that the intensity of difficulty cannot last in the same type of intensity. So faith that it's, it's going to be okay. I've said prayers and I will pray again. Uh, I used to think it was just something very strange and almost uh, nonsensical when I was younger. But I deeply believe in that power now. And poetry for me is a place where all of that resides. You know, it's a place where doubt or our questions or our joys also and our faiths can enter. Uh, I don't know if I answered that, but that's, a little bit of how I think about faith. Um, sometimes uh, when, when I'm ha going through um, some kind of like uh, difficulty or crisis of faith, um, I try to um, connect with some sense of like a future self who is, you know, older and wiser and um, 
just larger in every sense. And, and I just, I just thought of, you know, your, your 18 or 19 year old self and uh, I didn't like how comforted he would be like to know that like he, if, if he could have been comforted by, by you now. And um, I think that you and the person you are in your work is a great comfort to um, I think many adoptees in our community. So I appreciate that, Hannah, you know, I love that idea, thinking of our future selves or our younger selves, what would have comforted us. Thank goodness for music, because it probably saved me when I was younger, when there weren't other voices. You know, I didn't know of a single Korean adoptee poet when my first book came out. Luckily, the same year mine came out, Two other poets who I remain close, dear friends with had their first books published, but it was kind of navigating it on your own for me back then. There weren't all different, these books, there weren't blogs, there wasn't a podcast like this. And so, but if, yeah, if my writing or anything like that is, is helpful or a comfort, that's almost makes me speechless. I hope that's the case. You know, part of me thinks that I am writing for that younger self. I appreciate that very much. I'm, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I might squeeze in a question just because I think it flows really nicely from this conversation. You wrote an essay uh, for Gazillion Voices back in 2013 in which you say, I say to myself that if I ever write a book, Deanne's creative spirit will be with me as I write which is such a beautiful idea and I think links, I think, quite nicely to this conversation about, I guess, the company that you keep, just all of us, but, you know, as, as you're writing. Yeah, I don't know if that quote brings up anything for you now and, you know, even how Deanne's spirit has been with you. Yeah. Can I just say I've done a, a fair amount of interviews and I so appreciate your care and the questions, it, it makes me think of, of so much. Uh, I was talking about Deanne Borchet Liam, the filmmaker. In 1999, yeah, it was about 1999, 2000, her first film came out. It was called First Person Plural. Uh, she's an adopted Korean person from California. She lives in the East Bay and she's a documentarian. And I had never seen a film about adoption in 2000. And I was 30 at that time. And I was, I had just begun as a professor and I was sent a VHS videotape from her movie company because she was doing some talks across the state. And I had not met Deanne at this time. They asked me if I would moderate a conversation with Deanne Borchet Liam at the Fresno Art Museum. And I was just both excited, but also very scared because this was one of the first things that I really had done in the Korean adoption community. This was seven years before my first book came out. So I watched the videotape at home and I remember crying so much and being so drained afterwards. And I remember thinking, on the serious note, I remember thinking that was the most powerful thing I've ever seen. And on a, another note, I remember thinking, thank God I watched this film at home first because I was <laughs> bawling my eyes out, you know? Um, so I gathered myself and I was able to have the, you know, I hosted the event and we did a Q and A. And ever since then, Deanne and I have been friends. You know, I can't say we're really close, good friends in regular contact, but Deanne has always been a touchstone for me. She's a creative, generous, kind, visionary spirit. And I do think that when I'm writing, I think we always carry people like that with us, whether we're aware of it or not. You know, Maxine Hong Kingston, the writer, said that when she writes, she is writing with the history of 500 years before her. And it will affect 500 years after her. In other words, what we do in our stories and how we interact and what we put into the world, it may be remembered by someone for some reason. And that's meaningful. 
So, yes, I think I, not consciously, but I always have the end spirit with me, I think. I would say I'd have, I could talk way too long about this, but in, in, in short, I would say all the adoptees I've met in every city I've been to, if I've done a talk or it was at a social gathering or it was a book group, a podcast, a workshop, I feel like these are the experiences that shape us. And yeah, I feel like they're all a part of me. And, and Deanne is, is, was a very important and remains an important influence for me. And so I'll just add, if there is a listener out there who is navigating her own or their own or creating or thinking about creating or, or considering something positive towards fully becoming yourself, bless you and go for it. Take care and, and live that, I think. It's, it's, for me, it's one of the most beautiful things we can do. We just ask, this is really, really the final question. We just, um, so we know that you're currently working on a memoir and we're so excited for that. Um, can we just ask, yeah, how, how's it going? And um, I guess it, it's, it's quite different from the experience of writing poetry. Yes, it's very different. Um, so much so that I feel like I'm really learning a new instrument um, I'm loving the process, but it is very difficult. Probably been writing off and on on that memoir for a few years at least. Mm. Maybe, maybe more like five years. There was a patch of a few months where I actually thought about making it a YA novel. I was working with an editor who wanted to have me write a YA novel, and it just didn't take. I just couldn't do it. So it's a little slow going, but it's allowing me to write and think about things related to my adoption that I just don't feel like I've been able to do in the poems. Mm. It's also more challenging in this way because in a poem I can still invent and still, you know, almost make things up. Whereas in the memoir, I don't feel like I can do that as much. So it feels a little bit more raw, a little bit more bare, like I'm revealing more of myself, which is, again, both a little scary, but also exhilarating. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's going to be a while, I think, but, but I'm still plugging away at it. If any listeners are interested, on April 9th, there's the first Adoptee Literary Festival and it's founded and organized by two Korean-American adoptees, Marcy Calabretta, Cancio Bello, and Alice Stevens. And the website is just adopteelitfest.com, and it's free. They're going to have workshops and panels in memoir, journalism, poetry, short fiction, and middle grade and YA writing. I think it's going to be wonderful. I'm on the poetry panel, but there are some really wonderful adoptees across race and experience that'll be presenting. So thought I'd mention that. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with the wonderful Lee Herrick. And now we have a special giveaway to announce. Yes, it's our very first giveaway. And actually, we are a little bit jealous because it would be weird if we ended this giveaway ourselves, obviously. <laughs> so Lee has kindly offered to post signed copies of two of his books, um, his latest poetry collection, Scar and Flower, from which we heard the two poems at the beginning of this episode, and the anthology that he co-edited titled The World I Leave You, Asian American Poets on Faith and Spirit. So to enter, please email us at adoptedfeels at gmail.com or send us a private message on Instagram or Facebook with your name and one of your favorite poems. It can be from any poet from any time. And actually, if you don't have a favorite poem because, um, you know, you're, you're just kind of getting into poetry or you, you just want to explore it further, that's okay too. 
are. So, you know, just, just enter. <laughs> so please do this by the end of this month, which is March 2022, and then we'll randomly select one winner. So good luck. Also, stay tuned for episodes featuring more writers who ran workshops for us, including Jenny Hedron Wills and James Han Matson. And thanks again to the Overseas Koreans Foundation for making this series of online writing workshops possible. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you'd like to support us, please leave us a five-star rating or review or consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash adoptedfeels. Mm-hmm.